But before we jump in a little far farther, let us ask God to help us. Please bow your heads with me. Lord of glory, we come before you this morning, and we know that we are in need of you. Please help us, God. Lord, please help us to come as beggars to hear your word, to know, Lord, if, if you are not with us, and there is absolutely nothing that we can do. But I pray, Lord, that you may be glorified today, and that you may keep us aware of what is being said, and that you may speak, O oh God. Please help me in this moment, Jesus. In your son's name I pray. Amen. Now, I want you to imagine something with me. Let's all get into this time machine and go back in time a few thousand years where there's no iPhones, there's no Teslas, there's no Facebook, there's no Instagram, there's no fast food places. I know some of you are like, oh, no, no Facebook. It's okay. Just pretend with me. It is around 64 AD, and you're living as a Christian in Rome. During this time, a massive fire breaks out, which destroys two-thirds of Rome. The emperor at that time is angry, and he is furious, and he doesn't want to take the blame for it, so instead he blames the people that nobody cares about. He blames the Christians, and that includes you and your family. That one event sparks one of the hottest and cruelest persecutions you have ever seen toward you, your family, and your brothers and sisters in Christ. And now your life is completely different. Every single noise you hear at night you fear because you think it's the Romans coming for you. During the day when they knock at your door, you hide your children because you think the Roman soldiers are coming for you. Every time you go out, you clench your family tightly with the fear that they might, might be stripped away from you. And every night you pray with exceeding depths that God have mercy on you and your family. Life as you know it is completely different. The peaceful life you once knew is now gone in a fleeting moment. That is the context when the book of Revelation was written. Many people might fear the sound of Revelation, but in reality, it is a book that is extremely important to read because it was encouraged to, uh, it was encouraged, it was written to encourage Christians who were suffering at that time, and it is significant for us as well. Now, I, I want you to know that there is debate about when Revelation was written. There is an early debate and an and a early date and a late date, which revolves around the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. Depending on the date you lean with will affect the interpretation of the book. I will tell you that this morning we will be taking an early approach a date to the book of Revelation. But even though the dates might affect the interpretation of the book, I, I do not think that either date will affect the main idea of the book that Jesus has been reigning all the way from the end, all the way, all the way from the beginning, all the way to the end. The main idea that Jesus is Lord of Lords and King of Kings will not be affected by the date you choose to view this book through. So during this time, the Emperor Nero would have been on the throne in the Roman Empire. And for those of you who have studied church history, know that Nero was one of the cruelest emperors of the lineage of Roman emperors who has reigned. He persecuted, and he tortured, and he killed Christians. Listen to what Tacitus, 
a Roman historian says about this matter, and it should be up on the screen. So those who first confessed, speaking of innocent Christians, were hurried to the trial, and their death was aggravated with mockeries, insomuch that, wrapped in the hides of wild beasts, they were torn to pieces by dogs, or fastened to crosses to be set on fire, that when darkness fell, they might be burned to illuminate the night. Some Christians were thrown to wild animals to be torn apart. Others were used as lamps to light in the dark night when they were set on fire while they were still alive. And during this time of persecution, after suffering, suffering many years of imprisonment and many years of suffering, the Apostle Paul is beheaded. The great apostle is martyred for his faith. The Apostle Peter is also said to have died through the persecution of Nero. And tradition says that Peter was crucified upside down because he says he was not counted worthy to be crucified in the same manner that his Savior was. The Apostle James, the brother of John, had been martyred several years earlier. The other apostles who were still alive were scattered into different places as well as Christians of that time, which is why the opening greeting in the letter of 1 Peter says to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. It has been a hard and pressing several years for the Christians as they have been persecuted, as they have been exiled, and as they have been martyred. And then here we have the Apostle John exiled in an island they call Patmos. Tradition holds that he had been boiled in oil before being exiled. He says in Revelation chapter 1, verse 9, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation. So what we have here is one of the top leaders in the development of Christianity by himself on an island. Probably with his body wounded, having to survive on whatever resources the island had. But in the midst of one of his greatest needs, God speaks to him and gives him a vision of the things to come, but also one of the fullest pictures of the Lordship of Christ. So in the midst of pressing times, God is making John fully aware that he is still with his people. He is making John fully aware that even though it seems as if the gospel will not prevail, he is the God who has complete power and authority over everything that happens in the world and that he is reigning, has always been reigning, and will continue reigning even after everything passes away. So the chapter and verse we will be in today will be Revelation chapter 1, verses 4 through 8. But just so we can get a general context, we will be reading verses 1 to 8. So if you have your Bibles, please read with me. I'll give you a second so you can turn there. And the Word of God says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants, the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angels to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep that it, what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you 
and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him, even so. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. So to best serve you in the sermon today, I have laid out three points. Point number one is the Lord of history. Point number two is Jesus the conqueror. And point number three is a kingdom of priests. So if you'd like to take notes, I will repeat my points. Point number one, the Lord of history. Point number two, Jesus the conqueror. Point number three, the kingdom of priests. Let's start with point one. Let's look at verses, uh, verse four and part of five again. It says, John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is, who was, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ. So one of the things that happens in the book of Revelation are number patterns. And what you will see here are tripart patterns, meaning three things, three which represents the number of the Trinity, and you will also see the number seven used a lot, which represents completion and perfection. Other places we see the number seven used is when the Lord rested on the seventh day after creation, the seven I am statements of Jesus, the seven last phrases of Jesus on the cross, the, God, the command God gave to Moses for the seventh day to be a day of rest. These numbers are used to paint a picture of the Trinity for us. So when John talks about grace and peace coming from the seven spirits who are before the throne of God, I believe he's actually talking about the Holy Spirit. I think what John is doing is symbolically sketching before us the perfection and the completion of the Holy Spirit, but even more so the completion and the perfection of the Trinity. As, we've, as we saw before, the number seven is, ref, is a reference to completion and perfection, and I believe that the Holy Spirit is being referenced as the seven spirits before the throne of God, which means the complete and the perfect spirit. And what makes this interesting is that the book of Revelation is the only book in the New Testament that introduces a greeting from all three people of the Godhead. All three persons of the Godhead are brought into this greeting. Grace and peace from him who is, who was, and who is to come, which is referring to the Father. From the seven spirits before the throne, referring to the Holy Spirit. And from Jesus Christ, obviously referring to Jesus Christ the Son. This is important because in a time of persecution, what is being reminded to those Christians is that the omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient, holy, Trinitarian God will give them and bring to them grace and peace. The God who is three and one and one and three is giving them grace, which is unmerited favor towards man. The Godhead's undeserved power to given to man to face immense opposition and peace from the God who exists three and one and one and three. Peace coming from the Godhead. Peace meaning freedom from anxiety, freedom from inward disturbance, tranquility 
and firmness being given by this Trinitarian God to a people who go to sleep not knowing what tomorrow will bring. What we also see that is being communicated to us in verses 4 and 5 is that God reigns and rules over the course of world history and that God is outside of time. To encourage these Christians under persecution, this phrase, who is, who was, and who is to come, is written to them. And as I studied this more in debt, I was in awe of God's power. When you take a glance at this phrase, it's kind of weird because of the structure of the sentence. He says, who is, who was, and who is to come. You would think that God would say, who was, who is, and who is to come. But no, God lines it up as presence past, and future. Why? You might think that John has some grammar issues. John, you mean past, present, future, right? That's probably what God meant? No. It is written like that for a reason. God did not get it wrong when telling John, and John did not get it wrong when he wrote it down. What is actually happening is John is alluding to the Old Testament, he is alluding to the command he gave to Moses. And, that, and we see that in Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, which says, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. When God sent Moses and gave him the task to free the Israelites from the hand of Pharaoh and the Egyptians, he told Moses, I am who I am meaning that he is the God and the only God. All of the gods that the Egyptians had in place were dead gods. But here you have the living God, the one who in, in that moment was reigning supreme over every nation, the one, who in that, the, one who, uh, the one who split the Red Sea so that Israel can pass on dry grounds, the God who fed them through the wilderness and provided everything that they needed says, I am who I am. That same God is saying thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of years later, I am still who I am. As a matter of fact, the very God who spoke this world into existence in Genesis chapter 1, the one who walked with Adam in the garden, now millenniums later, is speaking to John the Apostle, still saying, I am who I am. The Godhead reigning for all of time through creation. That is what he means when he tells John who was, who is, and who is to come. God is alive and currently reigning as he has been for all of created history. God has placed every kingdom, every ruler, and every governor into power, and he has also torn down every kingdom, every ruler, and every governor. God has known every single person who has ever existed and has been the author of, every, of, of human history since the beginning. He is the one who divided the people in Babel when they thought that they could reach the heavens with their tower. He is the one who drowned Pharaoh and the Egyptians when they tried to chase the Israelites into the Red Sea. He is the one who humbled the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar and took away his reason. And the Bible says that King Nebuchadnezzar became as a wild animal. He is the one who was there with the Christians under the rule of Nero. He has cut down every king, ruler, and kingdom that has tried to usurp his power. And this is of great significance because if you remember the historical context that was brought, we know that the Christians this letter is being written to are under intense persecution from the Roman Empire. This is what John is saying to these Christians. 
trust in God who has been seated on the throne through every era of world history. Because all those kingdoms have fallen, but he is still seated on the throne and is sovereignly reigning. Every single king, ruler, and president that has risen, God has appointed and taken off as he pleases. And it doesn't matter what side of the political spectrum they are on. God rules and reigns because he is the I am who I am. And every single ruler and king that comes after we die will still be at the mercy of God until he comes back. There is something more that is being communicated to us in verse 4. We just need to dig a little bit deeper into the well. The word for is and was in this, phrase, in this phrase is actually the same root word in the Greek. So it is I me, which is significant to look at. And the Greek word for is to come, because it, in the Greek it is one word, is erkame. So in this phrase, who was, who was, who is, and who is to come, and the Greek is I me, I me, erkame. And what that means is I am, I am, I am coming, and I'm already here. So let's put this into perspective. God is saying, I am in the present, I am in the past, and I am already there in the future. Still not tracking with me? He is saying, I am today, I am yesterday, and I am tomorrow. Some of you are like, that's impossible. Right? Who can, how, how can someone be in the present, be in the past, and be in the future all at the same time? You're right. That is impossible for any created being to do. No one has that capability. Not unless you're God. You see, God is not trying to portray some form of multiverse where in parallel universes he is there at each specific moment. What is being shown to us is God's eternal, unchangeable nature. You see, from our perspective, we see time. We know there is a past. We're currently living in the future. We know there is a tomorrow. But friends, God is not bound by time. God is not bound by time. God is not bound by space. God is not bound by matter. But God is eternal, therefore, outside of the time frame of human history. So in the mind of God, he is viewing the world in one time frame. And where, and, and where in his mind all these things are done, but he will not manifest it until the fulfillment of the time according to his purposes for us. So see that God knows. He knows every single detail of human history. He is in control of every single detail of, of human history. He knows and has already planned out and seen the final redemption of his people. And to the people this was being written to, it is a relief because though they did not know what tomorrow would bring, they knew that God was in control and saw and ordained everything to the end. But this God does not only know every single detail of human history, but goes even deeper. He becomes even more personal. Because Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, leaves glory to come and make a living with sinners like us, which leads us to point two, Jesus the conqueror. Now, three things are attributed to Jesus Christ in verse five, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on the earth. Now, let's break these down individually. Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. How was Jesus a faithful witness, you may ask? Well, the word there for witness is martus, which means one who bears witness by his death. 
That word might sound familiar because it is pretty much where we get the word martyr from, one who dies for a certain cause. But Jesus was a witness not only in his death, but with all of his life. Jesus' entire life was a life of being a faithful witness. He is a faithful witness because he descended from heaven to testify of the works of the Father. He is a faithful witness because he lived a life in perfect accordance to the will of God. He is a faithful witness because Jesus lived out all that he taught. He is a faithful witness because he denied himself every day of his life. He is a faithful witness because he preached the right way to God, which is through faith and repentance. He is a faithful witness because when the time came, he laid down his own life. Brothers and sisters, Jesus was a faithful witness even on the day of his crucifixion. He was a faithful witness when he yelled, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was a faithful witness when he yelled out, I thirst. The Son of God, the creator of water, begging for his own creation. He was a faithful witness when he said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. He was a faithful witness when his blood was spilled for you and for me. Verse 5 says to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. He was a faithful witness because he loved his people unto death. Friends, Jesus died for us. The Son of God who left his throne to hang on the cross and now because of the faithful witness, we have life. The hymn, O great God, says, I was blinded by my sin. I had no ears to hear your voice. I did not know your love within. I had no taste for heaven's joys. Then your spirit gave me life. He opened up your word to me and through the gospel of your son gave me endless hope and peace. Because of Jesus, the faithful witness, I now have life. Not only is this truly glorious, but Jesus also stood as the example to those Christians who face being killed for their faith. Then we have Jesus, the firstborn of the dead. This phrase might be a little confusing to people, so let's break this down a bit. So in Hebrew culture, there was a priority put on the firstborn of the father, specifically the male. In biblical times, the firstborn would receive honor. He would receive unique privileges and unique rights. And after the people of Israel escaped Egypt, God commanded all of the first humans and animals to be consecrated to him. And if you look back at the book of Genesis, you will read that and see that usually the firstborn was the one of the blessing. But sometimes the firstborn was rejected. Ishmael was the firstborn of Abraham, but was, but was rejected by God and the blessing was given to, to Isaac. Esau was rejected and the blessing was given to Jacob. Reuben, the firstborn of Jacob, was rejected and the blessing was given to another son. The firstborn is mightily important. And what we have is John calling Jesus the firstborn of the dead. So from what we just explained, we can glean that Jesus is given some sort of privilege. He is given some sort of unique right. But what does it mean to be the firstborn of the dead? It's not, it's not like the show The Walking Dead where you got a whole bunch of zombies everywhere. It's not like we're going to have a bunch of dead-looking people walking around without life. 
But instead, we will have a people who have the life given by God. What John, what John is alluding to is Jesus' resurrection. You see, there are some accounts in the Bible where people were resurrected. The boy who was resurrected, that God used Elijah to resurrect. There was a man that was being buried by Elijah's bones, and when that man was, to- was thrown onto his bones, he came back to life. We have Lazarus, who was called back to life by Jesus himself. These people resurrected, but eventually they all died again. But oh, Jesus, he resurrected and is still alive. He has never tasted death again. And that is John's point. Jesus is the firstborn of a people who will never taste eternal death. He was the firstborn of this new creation to never die again. We might die a physical death once, but when he calls us out of the grave, we will never die again because of the firstborn of the dead. He has paved the way for us. Look at what Revelation 1, 17 through 18 says. Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death in Hades. Friends, Jesus has the keys of death in Hades hanging on his belt. Death in Hades has been conquered by Jesus. Death in Hades has no power on me. It has no power on you. Because of the firstborn of the dead, Jesus Christ. Death is no longer anything we fear because Jesus has conquered it with his life. What we can do from now on is but taste the sweetness of everlasting life with God. The third thing we have here is Jesus, the ruler of kings on the earth. So we have Jesus, the faithful witness, which correlates to his faithful life and death. We have Jesus, the firstborn of the dead, which entails his resurrection. And now we have Jesus, the ruler of kings on the earth, which entails his exaltation. When Jesus resurrected from the grave, he did not just rise from the grave. He was given a seat of exaltation next to the Father, and he was made ruler of kings on earth. What does that mean? It's simple. It means that Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. Jesus is sitting on his throne. He is reigning. He is ruling over this world. You know what is interesting? Remember when Jesus was fasting 40 days and 40 nights, and Satan came to tempt him. He told Jesus, if you just bow down and worship me, this will all be yours. You see that Tesla that's over there, that new one, that could be yours? You want money falling out of your pockets, that could be yours? But no, Jesus was faithful, a faithful witness, and because of his obedience to the Father, it all belongs to Jesus now anyways. Jesus Christ is ruling and reigning, sitting on his throne. He is ruling over the nations, and he is ruling over every president, every governor, and every magistrate that is in power. Friends, Jesus is not up there seated thinking, what am I going to do when someone comes into a position of power? In 2016, when Trump got elected, people thought that the world was going to burn. In 2020, when Biden got elected, other people thought that the world was going to burn. We can do all that we can try to do to put people in positions of power. But at the end of the day, Jesus rules over them no matter what political side they are on. Jesus is not up there breaking a sweat, scratching his head. What am I going to do? Nah, man. Jesus is sitting, reigning comfortably. King Jesus breaks no sweat for nobody. He is not stressed trying to figure out what to do. 
He is king. No one can usurp his power. The throne was given to him by God, and Jesus himself is part of the Godhead. And as an old friend of mine once said, I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. My ancient friend Job. Jesus Christ is supreme over all the rulers that have existed or are currently in power. This is Jesus the conqueror. But Jesus has not only conquered, he has made a people for himself to rule over with love, intentionality, and closeness. Which leads us to our last point, a kingdom of priests. Sometimes because of the bad connotations that come with the word priest, this might be a turn off for some people. Maybe you came from a very Catholic background and when you think of priests, it gives you some PTSD. When John says we have been made a kingdom of priests, he does not mean a Roman Catholic priest. What we have to look at is the original biblical intended design for the office of priest, the design for the priesthood that God had originally intended. There's a book I have been reading called Created to Draw Near by Ed Welch. It is a very good book. I recommend it. And in that book, he says, so we must understand ourselves as priests by how God identifies the priesthood rather than how we experience priests past and present. Once you try on this identity, you will enjoy wearing it. Just imagine the priest served in God's house, knew God close up, ate meals with him, and enjoyed his presence. To really understand John's point, I think it is important for us to look at the Old Testament office of the priest. But instead of giving you some verses and reference points for the sake of time, I'm just going to give you a general overview. In the Old Testament, we, have, we had two positions as priests. You had the high priest and then all the regular priests. But the role of the high priest was very particular. The high priest was the highest religious leader in Israel. He was also in charge of overseeing the other priests, so he's the boss priest. In the Old Testament, there was a day called the Day of Atonement. It was on the 10th day of the seventh month of the year, and the high priest would enter the most holy place and make a sacrifice, and then he will sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat. This was to atone for the sins of the people of Israel. And the other priests were never, never able to see this done because where the regular priests were and where the uh, high priests, uh, where the regular priests were was called the Holy of Holies, and where the high priest was was called the Most Holy Place. And those two separate areas were separated by a thick, large curtain called the veil. In general, as one commentator said, the primary function of a priest is to assist people and accessing God so that there can be union with him. Priests acted as mediators between God and man. Both the high priest and the other priests were called to live a life that was set apart for the service of God, to teach the law. But the very sweet and unique rights that they had was that they had an accessibility to God that no other people in Israel had. Because they were set apart for God, they had the ability to be close to his presence, to be in God's courts, to experience God in ways that other Israelites couldn't. The Old Testament office of the priest was one of closeness to God. So how does this relate to what John is writing? 
Well, in Hebrews chapter 4, Jesus is referred to the high priest who has passed through the heavens. He is rightfully called the high priest, and this is where it connects. The way that John magnified Jesus in the previous verse is not just random. He is making a connection to the work of the person of Christ and his people. Jesus indeed is the high priest, and because Jesus was a faithful witness with his life and death, he was a worthy sacrifice to the Father, and the high priest who was supposed to be making a sacrifice on behalf of the people actually sacrifices his own perfect life where his blood was spilled, and while he's on the cross, he says, into your hands, I commend my spirit. And the Bible says that as he died, the veil that separated the Holy, the holy of Holies and the most holy place was torn in two from top to bottom because Jesus died faithful to the end. You see, friends, that the cross was the climax of the priesthood. A new form of priest is now made. Jesus, the firstborn of the dead, is the firstborn of this new kingdom and nation, a kingdom and nation of priests. And Jesus, the ruler of kings on the earth, is ruling over this kingdom of priests. Why is this significant? Because of the implications this has for the people in, in the time of Revelation and for us. Now, as a kingdom of priests, we have the privilege and the ability to draw near to God that no other people in history ever had. Just think about it. Priests were made to be near to God and have the special privilege of being closer to God and enjoy his presence than anyone in Israel or any other nation. Being close to God's presence is no joke. God is holy and he is righteous. Remember when the Israelites were carrying the Ark of the Covenant back to Israel and it was uh, about to tip over and Uzzah reached out his hand to stop it from tipping over? And immediately God struck him dead because it was a direct violation of the law. The high priest was the only one who had the right to be close to the ark. Or how about when Moses was on the mountain meeting with God and you see thunder and lightning and clouds all out on the mountain and God, tells, and God tells Moses, do not let anyone even come near the foot of this mountain or they will die. Or when Isaiah is in the temple and has a vision of the Lord sitting down and it says that the train of his robe filled the temple and he says, I fell like a dead man. Brothers and sisters, God's glorious presence, no one can withstand. But because of the high priest, because that veil was torn in two, we who were supposed to be only in the courts now have the ability to approach the mighty throne of God, the most holy place, and not be struck dead. Friends, it is a glorious thing when we are able to gather here in this building with the church and be able to worship and not be struck dead. As we were singing, I didn't notice anybody dropping dead. Like, can you imagine as we were worshiping and then whoop, 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 right? People just start dropping dead. Like, turn to your neighbor, make sure he's still alive. Which is what would have happened in the Old Testament if we had entered the most holy place. But we can come and we can sing freely and approach the throne of God and commune with God and fellowship with God without hesitancy and because we have been made a kingdom of priests by Jesus. So to conclude, what can we do with all of this? 
what do we do with all of this information? Let's look, let's look through the lens of a Christian living in that time. You and your family are living in Rome. The Emperor Nero is persecuting every single Christian he can get his hands on. Most of the people who walk with Jesus have died out. You do not know if or when or where they will come for you or your family. But you go to church and you hear the words of this, le of this letter re read to you. And you go home and the father gathers the family before everybody goes to sleep. And the father looks into the eyes of his wife and then he looks at his children and says, kids, you know that we live for Christ and we honor him because of what he has done for us. And because of that, we are being persecuted. They might come for us tonight or they might come for us tomorrow, but know that as Jesus was a faithful witness, so we will be. Even though we are not sure what tonight or tomorrow will bring, even though we might, not, might be confused at times and perplexed, remember what God tells us through John. Grace and peace from him who was, who is, who was, and who is to come, from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on the earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. My beloved family, remember that this is the God that we trust in. Even though they kill us, we will live forevermore with him. God is in control of everything that happens. Remember who he is. And then they pray and they go to sleep. You see, the book of Revelation is not just some prophecies we need to try to figure out. The book of Revelation was written to a people who are under intense persecution to remind them that the God that they are dying for is in complete control of everything that is happening and that he is still ruling over the nations and ruling over the evil Roman Empire. These verses were written to encourage a group of Christians who were unsure of their future. But know that at the end of the day, God has all the power and that he is reigning supreme. That they are in the palm of God's hands and even if they are to die, they will be with him forever. This view of God, the Trinitarian God, shaped the way that the church thought about God. It shaped the way that they lived. It shaped the way that they worshiped. And that is why even before John writes to the seven churches in chapter 2, he gives a vivid picture of who this God is and what he has done. The view of God was to shape the way that they lived, even under intense persecution, to live as a kingdom of priests, a people who know this God intimately, a people who walk closely to God, a, a people who communes with God and eats with him a people set apart for God even through their suffering. Church, how are you living? What shapes your view of God? Is it the scriptures or your own beliefs and desires serving a God that you have made up in your own mind that gives you everything that you want? You see, these Christians were learning to worship God even when it meant laying down their own lives these four verses are a call to them and to us 
to refocus our eyes on this Trinitarian God who is eternal and unchangeable and to take a step back and see the beauty of our creator, to see the God that we say that we trust in. This passage also served as a comfort to those Christians in the midst of persecution. They are able to rest in the Lord of history. I can imagine them thinking in their minds, even though my life is taken, it does not change the fact that he is still seated on the throne. Even though my life is taken, I know that he is good. Even though my life is taken, I know that he's going to raise me back up anyways. They knew that their future was secure no matter what happened. We might not be persecuted right now, but nonetheless, this should be a comfort for us to know that there is hope for today. The same God who held, who held them in the palm of his hands is the same God who holds us in the palm of his hands. As much suffering as we can encounter in this world, we have the hope and the comfort that God is the Lord of history and nothing is out of his control. Even though this life is full of suffering, maybe you feel like the future is dark or you are not sure what tomorrow will look like just another day of agony and pain. God says that he is in control of everything. That what he is doing is showing us at the core of our being that he is good. And he will never forsake us or abandon us. God is with us and draws us near to himself. Not only is there hope for today, but, verse, but look at what verses 7 and 8 says. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. Church, he is coming back. He will be coming back in full glory. Both believers and unbelievers will see him. And that glory will take us in and we will reign with him. There will be no more pain. There will be no more suffering. There will be no more tears. The psalmist said in Psalm 42, verse 3, My tears have been my food day and night. While they say to me, where is your God? The God who comes back will be the one who personally removes the tears from his eyes as well as ours. Forever we will be a kingdom of priests unto him. But if you are not saved, that glory will bring eternal judgment on you. You will not be able to stand before the Lord of glory by your own merits. You need to repent and believe in what Christ has done on the cross and you will be saved. Examine yourself. Where do you stand? Which side of glory are you on? If you have believed in Christ and know that we can rest in the one who is coming back, the one who gives us grace and peace, church, behold your God. Let us pray. Dear Lord, I thank you for the word that was spoken today. And Lord, even as imperfect as we are to exposit your word, we know that it does not return void. I pray that you may help us to remember who you are and who we are serving in the midst of our lives. Please help us to be faithful to you 
even unto death, and that we may always cling on to Jesus the conqueror and know that we have been made a kingdom of priests because of what he has done. In your son's name I pray, amen.